The University of New England is embarking on a bold new mission to transform the university's decommissioned boiler house into a purpose-built discovery space. Here, on Curiosity Built the Boiler House, we'll follow the transformation of this 1950s industrial building into a regional science-themed play space. Along the way, we'll also chat with leading experts in education, play space design, and all things STEAM about what makes for an incredible discovery space experience. I'm Dr. James O'Henlin, and for this episode, I sat down with Kristen Alford, the director of the Museum of Discovery at the University of South Australia. When we started MOD, I had a chat with Uncle Lewis O'Brien, who's a, who's a Ghana elder here. We're on Ghana land. And he said, Adelaide, the Adelaide Plains has always been a place of learning. And so thinking about this as being a place of learning has really infused what we what we do because if ever I'm stuck, I, I come back to that story, well, this is a place of learning. The Museum of Discovery is a museum quite unlike anything you've been to before. It combines science, art, and storytelling. And whereas other museums might look into the past, the Museum of Discovery does the opposite. This museum looks into the future. So we call ourselves MOD which is a museum of discovery. Um, we're at the University of South Australia. And what we do is we try and inspire young adults, so people aged between 15 and 25, um, about science, technology, engineering and maths, but at this intersection of arts, design and, and a whole lot of other things, um, to really be equipped to navigate their future. And, I, and I'll state straight up, we're, we're not a collecting institution. We don't collect, we don't collect artefacts and, and we're not that type of museum. And we're not really a science centre in, in some ways in, in the traditional mode of a, of a science centre, which is kind of hands-on physics and interactives and things that explain the science either. And nor are we a gallery uh, which is, you know, orientated around artists and artwork. We're, we're kind of a mixture of all of those things. So I, I chose the word museum because I think for a general public, Hearing the word museum at least makes you think a little bit about your own expectations and, and what you might find there. So you know it's going to be a public space. You know it's going to be cheap or low cost to visit. You know it's accessible. You know you're going to have a learning experience. You know you're going to, um, you know, hopefully be transformed by something that you see. Um, and that seemed to be a word that has a, a good sort of solid understanding around it, whereas a lot of the the... The other words we tried, like studio or space or place or gallery, or none of those things really kind of worked um, from thinking about what the public might expect when they arrived. Um, and discovery, I think because we were really also thinking about our audience, which is those young adults who are, who are certainly on that path of self-discovery. And we just thought it was interesting to juxtapose that against the discovery of innovation and science and tech both of those things happening at once. And so you can come into modern and go on a journey of self-discovery and find out a bit about what inspires you, or you can come in and, and learn about the discoveries that other people are making through research. So it, it allows us to be several things, um, that title, and it allows our audience to interpret it a bit for themselves as well. Not only does the Museum of Discovery look into the future, it tackles the big questions challenging contemporary society. When I chatted with Kristen, I asked her what types of big challenges the museum wants to address, and how do they decide which issues the museum's exhibits are going to explore? I guess my thinking originally was the, these might be the sorts of questions that come up at 2am conversations in the middle of the night, you know, when you're sleeping over at someone's house or you come home from a night out or it's 
end of the party and everyone's gone home except for two of you on the couch who are having this big D&M. Um, a side, a side note, I did, we did ask young people that question and they mostly said at 2 a.m. it's, it's Uber Eats and Maccas. So I'm not quite sure that I've hit the mark there, but I wanted to tackle those, those kind of those big questions that you have when you're, when you're young and when you're learning something and, and the world sometimes makes no sense and you go, why did we build it that way? What, what does it, why would we do that? What does it look like? So, I mean, a good example might be to talk through the exhibition that starts in February 2021. So that exhibition is called It's Complicated. You know, and we started this exhibition because we thought we, we can't be a museum that, that thinks very clearly about the future and doesn't have a conversation around climate change. At the stage when we were starting to design this, climate change was incredibly polarising for people. And we also didn't want to just attract an audience who were already interested, already engaged, already activist around their actions. We wanted to attract the broadest, most general part of the population. Uh, and so it's complicated and talking about complex systems allows us to talk about that, but in the context of, of uh, you know, a, a bigger question, which is how do we understand systems? How do we change systems? And so... You know, when we look at some of the science that we've got in there, we've got a, a research project that is in collaboration with Deakin University, looking at public perception around whether you should decommission oil rigs, which is like a fascinating question when you get into it. We're showcasing some of the innovations that are happening around uh, ocean environment restoration. So whether you might build artificial seawalls to help um, ecologies or whether you might build um, there's there's some work going on around reefs being built from um, you know to encourage native oysters in our galleries upstairs we have uh, an artwork um, by Tim Murray Brown called Cave of Sounds which is the most amazing looking instrument you've seen it, it's an eight pronged instrument where you've got one person at each prong um, and by using a variety of odd music-making gestures or interactions, the audience will make their own emergent music, which looks at the emergent behaviour of systems. So again, that's explaining a, a, a concept perhaps, but it's doing it through you know, a very creative and very immersive artwork environment. Um, and then we've got a, a gallery space which is looking at um, research and innovation around um, the use of CAR-T, cell therapies for treating cancers um, and you, you come into that space and there's an immersive game that you play to, to understand how those therapies work in, in blood cancers and then also in solid state tumours. And so, you know, at the intersection of science and art, sometimes can be the artist like Cave of Sounds, but sometimes it's using those really um, artistic practices like uh, animation or gaming to be able to illustrate uh, a, a concept. Having only opened its doors in 2018, the Museum of Discovery continues to emerge and evolve. I asked Kristen what it looked like in the beginning and where the idea for this unique future-focused museum came from. The Vice-Chancellor of the University of South Australia is Professor David Lloyd and David arrived in Adelaide to BBC in 2013. And, and part of his initial engagement with the community around his strategy for the university was to ask them what they want and what they thought of the university should do. And there was quite a lot of input from the public at that stage that said, we're really keen on science engagement. We think there should be more encouragement for people to do STEM. We want to see more STEM students coming through high schools and into universities and then, you know, looking for good, solid employment prospects later because we, we, we think that's important for the prosperity of the state. 
And so um, David had previously been at Trinity College in Dublin and was involved in the setup of Science Gallery and so was very keen to do something similar to that in response to, um, to that strategic uh, opportunity. We, we do sit within the communications and marketing unit of the university and there is a strong desire for us to, to in, be inspiring young people to take up STEM, which means inspiring young people to come into the university to study um, those disciplines. And as I said, you know, my definition of STEM is, STEM is fairly broad, so I'm happy to throw in art and architecture and um, design and a whole lot of other, you know, business-related things in, into that sort of collection. So in, in some ways, that, that's, that's one purpose that we serve for the university. Um, but I've got, I've got three main objectives that I look at, and one of them is inspiring young people, which is that one. The second one is showcasing the research of the university. So working closely with the um, Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research and Enterprise and the research deans and um, researchers across the university to see, you know, what, what we could possibly bring to the public. And that, and that really is to get the public thinking about the importance of research, to value it, to understand how it affects their lives and, and how, that, how it also shapes the future for them which I think is, you know, is, is really relevant, especially when we're looking at, you know, transport or healthcare or those things that, that bump up against people in their ordinary everyday lives as well. And then the third thing is to change the cultural conversation of the state around the importance of, of science and technology. Um, and so that's probably that broad public engagement, public appreciation and literacy and understanding of, of science, which is the more, um, I guess, traditional science communications sort of path. So that, I mean, that's what we, we serve for the university, but we're only successful if people come. And so we, we brand ourselves clearly as mod and often that's attached to the university, but not, not always. Like on social media, you'll just see us as mod. And the reason we, reason we do that is some of our early testing um, with young people said that when they saw the university logo or, or saw that it was a UniSA thing, they assumed they'd have to be a student to come that it was a student-orientated initiative, and that's the opposite of what we want. You know, um, we do want to be there for our current students, but we, we also want people who aren't associated with the university to come to MOD and therefore start to develop maybe a relationship with the university. So we have to get them through the doors. Um, and so we've we very deliberately branded MOD um, in, in black and white and, and not UniSA blue, for instance. Um, we've got our own identity out there. It's to get people excited about MOD and then by bringing them in, they then start to make um, the association with the university and understand that. We are on a university campus. We're in, um, we're in the City West campus in, a, in the new Cancer Research Institute building. And part of that is also a very deliberate, almost like front door of the university for the public in some, in some way. University of South Australia was, was certainly founded with an aspiration of making education accessible to people who otherwise wouldn't have thought about coming into tertiary education. So we have a lot of first-in-family students and a lot of mature-age students. Um, and part of part of bringing people in that 15 to 25-year-old group to MOD is to get them comfortable coming onto a university campus as well and not to be overwhelmed by it. You know, if you've never been to a university campus, we all know that they're ridiculously complex sprawling beasts with door numbers that make no sense so um, you know at least if you've been coming to mod for a couple of years and then you realize that that's a uni campus then you, you feel like you belong there and you feel like you um, you have a place at university as well. Despite sitting on a university campus the Museum of Discovery is very much a place for the broader community to enjoy and contribute. I wanted to know what this looks like in practice. 
How does the museum break down the walls that can sometimes separate the university, community and the general public? We often say in our tag, one of our taglines is a, a place to be and be inspired. So the be inspired I've, I've talked about, but the place to be is you should feel like you belong there. <laughs> you should feel like you're, you're welcome and it's a place that's, that's yours. And that really is about opening up com- to community. Um, but I think, I think also that only works if you, if you are engaging with the community in the, in the design and making of the thing. So co-design and is, is something that we aspire to, to get better at. But we're, we're always looking for opportunities to bring the community into some of the things that we're doing. So we, you know, we reach out to our university uh, community to do some of our user testing. Um, we've reached out to schools communities to participate in, um, in exhibits and programs and advisories to us to, to help us um, bring that in. Uh, we do the same sort of thing with industry and with Aboriginal communities um, and with the arts sector here in South Australia as well so that we, we kind of have this broad, um, broad desire to bring people in to what we're doing and for us to be quite open and sharing with what we, what we do back. You know, over the last couple of years, we've had a, a, a good volunteer pool and I think probably about uh, maybe a third to half of the people who volunteer are current students, which is fantastic. Um, it gives them, and I think especially for our international students, gives them a chance to come in and, and meet a community of people and, um, you know, that that's actually really great. And a lot of them have come on further to, to take up part-time roles with us. Um, the other thing that we do is we run a fairly, I don't know, diverse internship Program. So the university runs a lot of work integrated placement subjects as part of a part of their degrees. So we've been working with um, primary education students and uh, journalism and communication students on making podcasts. We've been working with business students on procurement and asset management. Um, we've been working with design students. We've been working with engineering students on this crazy exhibit for It's Complicated, which is looking at uh, industry 4.0 and um, actually that project resulted in six honours students for engineering students last year uh, honours projects which was great so I think there are those those opportunities for us to work with with you know specific parts of disciplines and give people that either that work integrated learning or, or something within their, their curriculum that relates to relates to mod um, and gives you know gives a really good relevant clear application of the learning that they're doing um, and so that's I'm I'm really excited about those projects because I think that provides value back to the the students of the university, but it also it also then again showcases some of their work to the broader public, and it's a it's a nice way of doing that. Kristen has taken on the mammoth task of being the Museum of Discovery's first ever director. I asked her what this meant in terms of her ability to make decisions about the museum's focus. Was being the first ever director a liberating experience? Or was it a daunting experience of trying to meet stakeholder expectations? I mean, I, th- I think there was a, a, a blueprint for what was expected. So I, I came on after the design of the building had been, had been done. So in, in some ways, you're still working with people's expectations because, you know, people have an imagined future of what this place is going to be. And um, because it's not because it doesn't exist yet, those futures all feel very real to a number of stakeholders. And so being able to then present, you know, my my vision for what I was thinking um, and not quite sure whether it was going to hit the, the various stakeholder expectations is, is, yeah, terrifically frightening. 
and also, you know, because because David's had that involvement with Science Gallery and, and uh, you know, MOD is his idea and really his investment, I think, in the community, you want to make sure that you're that he's proud of the work that, that you do, understanding at the same time that the two of you won't necessarily have the same perspective or same execution. So I know that I'm, I'm not delivering exactly what he wanted, but I'm hoping I'm delivering um, within within a certain you know, degree of tolerance, but also understanding what that is is always, well, not quite terrifying, but it's all, it's always challenging and you want to be doing the right thing. I was surprised to learn how diverse a museum director's skill set needs to be to manage and understand such a dynamic organisation. You know, the sorts, of, the sorts of things that I've pulled on coming into the museum director role is I've pulled on, you know, when I, when I was in university, I, I was a rhythmic gymnastics coach and I, I'm surprised how much of that I have used in the design of the museum because it's thinking about, you know, um, the spaces as needing combinations of high and low and fast and slow and expressive and, you know, balance and all of those things. And I, that's, that's choreography. So that the choreography is really important. Um, I'm, I'm an engineer. I'm a process engineer. So I'm a chemical engineer by, by background. Um, that's how my brain thinks. I think things coming in being refined over a series of things and, and coming out again the other side because that's the way that I was trained to solve problems. And so thinking in processes and frameworks is, is basically the way that my brain works and that's been incredibly, incredibly useful. Kristen describes herself as a futurist, which I guess is an essential skill when directing a museum dedicated to looking into the future. But when chatting to Kristen, I had to be honest and admit that I wasn't quite sure what a futurist was. What's it actually like being a professional futurist? I always go back to this some this some work by Richard Slaughter, who's a, a futurist in Queensland, who talked about like levels of futures, and one's the pop futures level. That's the evangelist. That's the person in the in the in the flash suit getting played a heap of money to talk to you and and rev you up about stuff. And some of those are actually really great. They get you excited and they get you imagining a world that is is possible. And I think that's a that's a that's a good function. And then you've got the next level which is the pragmatic kind of level of futures which is yes but I would kind of put it like okay, well flying cars are great, but when we've got 60% youth unemployment in some of our suburbs is is that really what kind of world we should be developing or um you know it's it's great that everybody has, you know, amazing amounts of information at their fingertips but have you looked at the mental illness statistics lately and thought about how we might have created that out of you know having this constant kind of attention grabber um a a mirror to us all, all of the time so i think that the pragmatic level of futures starts to ask those more um those those deeper questions about how is the world structured and um, what are the systems that are in place and how might you drive change and therefore what are some different things? So again, at the pop level, you're likely to have one shiny future, whereas at the pragmatic level, you're starting to explore a whole range of futures um, and starting to think about what could potentially unfold. And then you've got deep civilizational thinkers in, in futurists as well who are who are really thinking about those macro macro historical cycles of change um, and putting things into that big civilizational context. I tend to sit in the pragmatic end of the spectrum. I, I like to see that there are, um, you know, potentially some some actions that can be taken from what we're what we're doing that will make a difference to people. I like thinking about things in that holistic kind of way. I'm a bit suspicious about tech evangelism 
you know, which is tricky being at the helm of a science, a science-related museum. But um, you know, it, it's only as good as the people that that use it. So, so thinking about those those bigger questions, I think is is really is really critical. Um, at our heart, most of us are, to some degree, futurists. Anyway, we imagine what it's like to be married. We imagine our, what our kids are going to be like when they're twenty. We imagine what it's like to be old. You know, those are all personal futures. So it's really just. Um, you know, a, a good futurist will help people develop their capacity, I think, for for thinking about the future in deeper and richer ways so they can make better decisions. I don't think you have to be optimistic. I think you can think the world is, is getting worse and still strive to create a better future. And I think, I think it's separating those things. I do think separating those things out are, are where it is really helpful. So, but also whether you think you can make a difference in that and whether there are multiple ways of getting there and and some of those are the underpinning theories of hope hope theory so i think i think to be a good futurist it helps to have hope and to think about generating hope but you can wrap up feeling disenfranchised or negative or pessimistic about the future in that as long as you can find yourself a way a way out I'm not a very optimistic futurist, you can tell, but um, I do, I do believe in the in the concept of generating hope and and leaving people with, with space to create something better. Despite Kristen's passion for looking into the future, I couldn't help but notice how often she talked about lessons we can learn from the past. I wanted to get her thoughts on how this all fits together. Is progress all about moving forward and leaving the past behind, or can moving into the future involve taking steps backwards? Can we progress forward while still adopting and embracing ideas from our past? This is, I think this is where it's interesting thinking about our principle of being two-way minded and bringing together both Western and Aboriginal ways of knowing and making meaning of the world um, because that, that gives you a, a lens into thinking about time that is quite different. So, the, the, you know, the Western, for most Western people, time is like an arrow you know, you want it to go up. <laughs> you want to you want to keep achieving. Um, you know, it's it's linear. It goes in a certain direction, um, and and progress is is a perfect arrow. So I think, um, but if you think about the ways that First Nations people perceive time, then that that doesn't really make sense. Um, you know, time is is more. Uh, sometimes it's more wrapped up into a moment. Sometimes you see it represented as cycles of time. I think that actually becomes quite helpful because you, you can imagine that we might be on a cycle and, and instead of going forward all the time, we're just coming back, but maybe in a spiral, you know, so we're not necessarily going backwards. We're still going forwards, but we're refinding things that worked well previously and reinventing those for the current context and then moving on. So I think sustainability is like that. It's not necessarily that we want to go back to the 1880s or you know before the industrial revolution or you know you, you can't you can't do that but if you think about some of the things that as we as we go around some of the things that we value which is maybe we value time with family maybe we value um, nature play and the ability to be outdoors and the and the interaction that we have with nature and maybe we value a healthy diet or growing our own food or some of those sorts of things. Um, maybe we do value less stuff. We might be able to come around to that in a way that's not going backwards, but coming back around the spiral and then reinventing it for another, another go. I think I prefer that to the idea of this kind of linear time where, you know, you're, you're always trying to go forward. I like the idea that you can revisit 
things that have worked. You can revisit old stories. You can then, you know, leave leave on that layer what's perhaps not useful for, for going forward and then you can reinvent and reinvent. You know, I, I just wonder if we need more stories, which is why I like which is why I like futures, I think, because I think there is there is a human appetite for stories, but often often those stories are, you know, the big, the bold, the conquest. I think the problem becomes when we only tell those stories. So I think that's where, you know, you look at places like Silicon Valley and, and at, at a certain stage in the around 2010, it was all an app for this, an app for that, an app for this, an app for that. And there weren't any other stories in that that were coming out at all. And so I think, you know, I think I think we just need to have more um, more diversity in the stories and, and more kind of interdisciplinary mingling. As a museum that deals with big issues facing the world today... I was interested to hear how they responded to one of the biggest challenges facing us all, a global pandemic that's changed how businesses operate and how people interact with each other at a fundamental level. Well, it's funny, I, I've, I've got the notebook that I, I opened at the start of the year and I've got 2020, welcome to the future and very optimistic and I just think, oh dear, that's you poor thing. Um, well, I mean, I think the, the year's been interesting for us because I think I came back as I said, you know, that the conversation with Uncle Lewis about Adelaide being a place from learning really helped me think in the development of MOD about a 100-year future. You know, so at the moment we are executing our, our vision by putting on exhibitions, but if we were to continue that in the face of COVID, what would we do? And so probably mid-March we decided that having an interactive museum with lots of touchscreens was probably not the best thing to be operating under COVID risk. And so we closed a little bit earlier than... Um, government regulations might have suggested uh, and we within eight days had launched an online exhibition called Life Interrupted and that was an amazing experience because we we looked at some of the assets we had from previous exhibitions and thought what could we put online what new things might we like to commission over the next few months and then we really worked with all of our all of our team but especially our casual staff actually to create new ideas for things that we had never done and I think that was even more weird and discombobulating than setting up mod to start with because anything was anything was open and and the world was seemed very unstable like anything was possible so yeah for the next five months i had staff members um moderating minecraft sessions four times a week um we had them live streaming games through twitch we did uh, something like 64 interviews with people um created hours of tv each week um we commissioned dance works and sound works and a whole lot of things that went online so that was really satisfying and also we know that it made a difference to people we could see from our web visits that people were not just looking at when we were open they were coming to engage in in those experiences and i and i think it was a really valuable thing for us to do but also we just learned so much from doing that in terms of how we might think about the other work that we do um, I think going forward it's it's really tricky right because um, the university sector has hit been hit particularly hard by COVID with the lack of international students coming in um, and certainly you know some universities are hit worse than others and I think UniSA is probably somewhere in the in the middle um, but it will impact upon the resources that we've got going on that we that we've got available to us going into the future and it will probably affect the types of things that we're able we're able to do. I mean, I think the other thing that we learned around going online was that it helps to make content that's really super super niche. <laughs> so, so putting something out there that's broadly applicable for everybody, 
when the whole internet is is there for them to to look at is probably not um you know so the thing that we learned uh, uh, like we had a couple of our our moderators um design a role-playing game for so that you could pretend that you were working in a museum for instance which is really i think super niche to play an online role-playing game about a museum and yet that developed its own audience and i think um doing that and minecraft um i know we had a discord channel sort of running up in the background and and by the end we had this small community of people who were actually quite active in in having discussions through that discord channel about science and technology and future careers which is what what we would hope to inspire them to talk about so i think there are those sorts of learnings that if you're if you're making content with the audience in mind and you're engaging in the sorts of conversations that you think are important, that, that will that will land and it will have impact for people. Um, but it, it is also a delight to have galleries open again and to see people coming in and um, I think our challenge... And to have the sorts of conversations you can have with people face-to-face or see them engaging with something. So our, our challenge at the moment going forward for the next couple of years is thinking about how do we do that mixture of online and in-gallery and are there new hybrid ways of playing with that that we've not thought about yet? Um, and uh, the second thing is how can we develop touchless interactives as quickly as we possibly can? <laughs> you know, so some of the things that we've got for you, it's complicated, are, um, you know, games that you play through projection mapping and movement sensor. Um, and I think sort of experimenting um, technically with some of those solutions will be, will be really interesting as well and, and certainly will help us keep the galleries open in a variety of circumstances that, you know, a whole series of sort of touchscreens and levers and really hands-on things become quite tricky. It's no surprise to hear that a museum of discovery focused on exploring the future that's directed by a futurist and that operates with a 100-year plan has some pretty exciting plans for the future. I asked Christian what's her driving focus in moving the museum of discovery forward. The, the key thing that's on my mind at the moment is, is how do we, how do we galvanize our community to make a difference? And so a lot of, a lot of the global questions around museums, you know, that are, that are perhaps causing grief in all sorts of places is, is what kind of role as activist does a museum or a science center have? And I think for, for us as science centers, it's, it's probably specifically around things like climate change and post pandemic sort of futures, but, it's also about social justice and equity. Um, it's also about Black Lives Matter and thinking about um, the representation of, of people of colour and Indigenous people in our communities. All of, all of those things are so critical. And as an individual, I think it's, it's really important that we should strive to make the world a fairer, more sustainable, more prosperous place. And so that, that has to then feed into into the work that I do as a museum director, and I and I think you know most most museums and scientists have come to the the very clear understanding that that you know it, it's not an objective thing that you're doing. It is it is completely driven by by values, um, and that that's okay. That that's probably where my head is at in a sort of a strategy kind of mode at the moment, like where. How, how do we take an active role in making the world a better place? Small things, you know, <laughs> like just that's a small question, right? Um, but, I mean, that's where the most satisfying work comes from, I think, as well. As, as you've said, you know, we, we, we try and tackle big, big questions at Mord, and I think that's, that's actually really important. To learn more about the Museum of Discovery, visit their website, 
mod.org.au or follow them on Instagram and Twitter at mod underscore museum. This podcast is recorded on Anaiwan country and has been brought to you by the University of New England. To find out more about the Boiler House Discovery Space, visit uneboilerhouse.org.au. Thanks for listening. We'll see you here next time on Curiosity Built the Boiler House. Thank you.